2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he has called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Right, um, when we read the Bible, over and over again, we're going to discover contrasts. Good versus evil, light versus darkness, wisdom versus foolishness. But, but sometimes we don't notice the contrast because, because we're not looking wide enough. Because it, it's easy to recognise a contrast with it when it's within one or two sentences or one or two verses. But sometimes these contrasts are spread out over a few paragraphs and sometimes even a few chapters. And because we're not in the habit of reading the whole big chunk and we're in the habit of only reading tiny little bits at a time, often we'll miss these contrasts. And, and today could be one of those times because there's a really powerful contrast at play here. We've been working our way through Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. And in the bit that we studied last week, Paul was trying to reassure the Thessalonians, hey, look, don't be worried that the second coming of Jesus has come and gone without you noticing it. Um, and he reminds them that there's a couple of things that's got to happen before Jesus returns. And he talked about the rebellion and how the man of lawlessness had to appear. That's the bloke that is also known as Antichrist. And that these things had to happen before Jesus would return. And the most surprising thing, or at least for some of us it might have been surprising, is that although the, this man of lawlessness is the doing of Satan and he's empowered by Satan, it's God who sends him. It is God who sends this powerful delusion. And God's purpose is so that those who don't love the truth and who do take pleasure in unrighteousness will be deceived by the man of lawlessness. Right? So it is God who sends them this delusion. It, it, it's not only... It, it, it's not that they can't believe, it's that they don't love truth and they're very happy to believe a lie but not the beautiful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and so those who will be deluded and worship the man of lawlessness are those who don't love the truth and who do pleasure in unrighteousness and now comes the contrast but we ought always give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. Now, there's a reason that Paul is giving thanks to God for these Christian brothers of his. 
And it's a reason, that the same reason, is why we should give thanks to God for all of our Christian brothers and sisters. They are beloved by God. Why? Because God chose them. Or is it, be, or is it that God chose them because they are beloved of God? Well, they're both. It's both. Why should I love you? It's because you're the beloved of God. And God chose you. How could I not love you? What, why should you love me? Well, I, I know you can't believe it, but I'm the beloved of God too. And God chose me. What, one of the most wonderful doctrines of salvation is what we call predestination. That means God started all this. God chose us. God chose to make known his gospel to you and I. God chose us that we would get the chance to hear a preacher, maybe this very day, who would share the gospel with us so that we might be saved. That's wonderful. Is anyone happy about that, that God chose to do that? Yes. Now, depending on the version of the Bible that, that you read, the next few verses in your Bible might be different to what we just read just now up on the screen. Right, so in the ESV, which the English Standard Version that we just read, it said, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. If you go back to the old King James Version, it says, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. The American Standard Version, which is also an older one, says God chose you from the beginning unto salvation. Uh, the Re Revised Standard Version also says, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved. But when you get to some of the newer translations, so the new Revised Standard Version, so the updated version of the Revised, says, because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation. The NIV says, God chose you as first fruits to be saved. But the old NIV, published in 1984, the one that I grew up on, says, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved. Right? So, so the more recent translations are saying, God chose you as the first fruits, whereas older translations are saying, God chose you from the beginning. Now, why is there this discrepancy between our different versions of the Bible? Surely the older ones are the ones that should be most trusted. Well, maybe, but not the older English translations, the older original source documents. You see, the Bibles that we read today, they're all translations. Every single one of them is a translation um, because the Bible, contrary to what we English speakers think, we're not the centre of the universe and everything wasn't originally written in English. And so the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, New Testament originally written in Greek. But the problem is, even the ancient Greek documents, they're not originals either. A letter would have been written. So the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to this church in Thessalonica, and another church would have come along and read that letter and go, wow, is that from the Apostle Paul? Yeah, it was. There's some great teaching in that. 
I'd like to get a photocopy of that to take back home. And so to photocopy it, there's no photo, it's just copy, word for word. In, in, in the Greek script, they would write out the whole letter and take it home to their church. And then somebody would visit their church and go, is that, is that a letter from Paul? Yeah, yeah, we copied it off of that Thessalonican church. Wow, there's some good stuff in there. We should, t- I'll get a copy of this for our church. And they would write it down, word for word. Meantime, the letter in Thessalonica has been read so many times, it's worn out, it's fallen apart, pages are getting torn. We'd better, we'd better make a new copy before we can't read this one anymore. And so they'd copy it down. Are you with me? There was no printing presses. And so what we have access to today are handwritten copies of copies of copies. And some of the oldest and most reliable manuscripts differ. Very minor differences, but they're important differences. And in the Greek, to get the difference in these couple of words here, all it takes is a space and one letter. If you can see, oh, we've got it up on the screen shortly. Um, so in the Greek, it, it says apachin. One word means fruits. But it is so similar to if you add a space into it and change one letter at the end, it goes ap achase. From the beginning, as in from the beginning of time. Now, they are so similar. All it took was one space and one thing. Which one's right? Well, how would we know? We, we don't know. And um, the earlier English translators picked the ones that said, from the beginning. But later on, translators have noticed that nowhere else has Paul in any of his other writings ever used that phrase. Um, whereas he talks about the first fruits quite often. Now, that mightn't seem much to you, but it, it, it's something that, that really helps them to decide which translate, which, which document is most likely to be the one that Paul used. We all have a certain number of words that we use in our vocabulary. So I would use words that you don't use, and you would use words that I don't use. It, it's just the way we are. And, and in this case, they've noticed, well, Paul would be using a word that he's never used anywhere else in any of his other writings. Now, so which is correct? We don't know. So I'm going to give the interpretation of both. So God chose us from the beginning of time to be saved. Now that's wonderful. God's whole plan of salvation, it wasn't a freak accident God knew that his creation, that that all people would rebel against him. And yet he created us anyway. It wasn't wasn't like Eve picked that piece of fruit and ate it and gave some to Adam and he ate it and God goes, oh, man, I didn't see that coming. It wasn't like every single other person who lived throughout time after then has gone on to continue to sin and rebel against God and God go, I can't believe they did that. Golly, what am I going to do now? That's not the way it unfolded. God knew that they would sin. God knew that we would sin. And he planned to send his only son to die 
so that God could be who God truly is, loving, merciful, gracious, forgiving Saviour. And by believing in him, we could be forgiven. God knew that I would sin against him. But before the beginning of time, he chose that I would be born into a Christian family and that there on my mother's knee, I would hear the gospel. And then as they took me to church, I'd hear gospel preachers sharing the gospel some more, that one day I might believe the truth and be saved. God knew that you would sin against him. But before the beginning of time, he chose you. He chose that somehow you would hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ being preached, that you might believe the truth and be saved. Praise God. We, we got a lot to give thanks to God for. So what about the other translations? God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. What does that mean? Well, first fruits is a sacrificial term. In the Old Testament, the first fruits was the very first of the harvest, the first bit it would be set aside for God. So the majority of the harvest was retained for everyday consumption, but the first fruits were gathered together for God, and it would be set apart as holy for God. And as we look around the world today, the majority of people do not love the truth and so are not saved. But Christians, disciples of Jesus, are set apart as holy to God. When you become a Christian, you are set apart for God to be holy. God chose you to be his, to be his first fruits, and this, to be holy. And, and this fits very well with, with what Paul goes on to talk about when he talks about being sanctified. And we're going to get to that shortly. Now, one of the debates that people like to argue about in the Christian church, and I really wish that they wouldn't argue about these sorts of things. Um, but, but these arguments revolve around free will, right? Do we have a free will when it comes to believing in God? Or do I have no option? Does God choose me and make me? Or does, do I choose him? And I don't know why people have these sorts of debates. They're fruitless. God chooses us, but we have a choice as well. We have a choice in how we respond to God. And throughout our reading today, we see the work of God, but we also see the part that we humans play in this work of God. And this is an amazing thing. God can do whatever he likes all by himself, but the way God is... And for his glory, he brings us into his activity, into what he is doing, and he does it through us. So God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 
Sanctification. What does that mean? That's a very, that's one of the most religious sounding words, isn't it? Eh? Sanctification. Um, it simply means to be made holy. Uh, and this is something that only the Holy One can do. So, for instance, has anyone ever gotten tar on them? Ever had tar? You have, Margaret? Tar. Tar is, imagine, it's like me trying to get myself holy is like trying to get tar off me. Oh, there's tar there. I'll wipe it off. Oh, now it's here. I guess I'll, oh, now it's here. Oh, there. and you just end up with tar everywhere. You cannot wipe it off. It, and that's what sin is like. Sin and our unholiness, no matter how much we try to make ourselves holy, we cannot do it. The only one who can make us holy is the one who is already holy. If we try to make ourselves holy, we just keep spreading our sin and it just keeps getting worse and worse. Now, sanctification, us becoming holy... It begins with our initial forgiveness, all right? So, so we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess our sins to God and he washes us clean. He purifies us. He makes us holy. And this is what baptism signifies. Putting to death our old sinful man or, or the old sinful woman, dying with Christ and raising up the new. It's sort of like having a bath even. You go down under the water and you come up out of the water, pure and holy, all of our sins washed away. And you never, ever sin again, right? No, no. I'm not going to trick you guys. Or am I the only impure one here? Am I the only one who continues to sin against God and continues to sin against my brother and sister? And so sanctification is what God continues to do in us as we live day by day in the Lord. How does God do it in us? Is sanctification simply about about me, right, I'm going to try harder to be a better person. Is that how we get sanctified? No, that would be a disaster. It's as we live day by day in the Lord. When we pray, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit, what does he do? This isn't a trick question. <laughs> when we pray, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit, what does he do? He fills us with his Holy Spirit. It's like Jesus said, you know, if, if you being wicked parents know how to give your children good gifts, how much for, more will your Father who is in heaven give, your, give his Holy Spirit to those who ask him, right? So when we ask God for his Holy Spirit, he fills us with his Holy Spirit. Now, what's the evidence that we are saved? What's the evidence that we've been filled with his Holy Spirit? It's not the gifts of the Spirit. Um, the gifts of the Spirit are not the evidence because those can be counterfeited. It's the fruit of the Spirit, the very character of Christ developing in us. In baptism, we put to death the old man, the old woman, and Christ and his character comes alive in us through his Holy Spirit. Love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And fruit is something that develops and grows. My orange tree, growing oranges at the moment, I'm a bit concerned because some of them are turning orange, they're only about that big yet. And usually they get to about that big before they start turning orange. But the fruit, it doesn't just suddenly appear. It's something that grows. That's what fruit does. And that's what you're going to discover. When you first become a Christian, there's going to be some sins that you've always struggled with that instantly, I don't know why, well, I do know why. God's taken that temptation away. I'm not tempted by that thing anymore. Some sins will be like that. They'll be instantly dealt with. But there's going to be others that will continue to appear in your life and, and, and it will continue to be revealed to you that, you know what, this is something that I'm not honouring God with and I need to get rid of that in my life, out of my life. And so we're going to find that we need to daily repent of everything that is wicked in us and he will continue to transform us to become more and more like Christ. And if as I live day by day, I am not becoming more like Christ, then there is something seriously, seriously wrong in my relationship with God. Now, what's the goal of all this? Sanctification. What is the goal of this? Sanctification will continue until either the day that we die or until the day of the Lord when Jesus Christ returns. And the purpose of our sanctification is for the glory of Christ. Stop thinking that it's about you. Stop thinking that it's about all oh, so that I can become the best person that I can be for God. God making you holy is for the glory of Christ. Back in chapter 1, verse 10, it says, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Who are the saints? Are there any saints visiting us today? Put up your hand if you're a saint. Four of us are saints. Six of us, seven of us are saints. Seven of us are saints. Now, the, the problem with saints... There she is. <laughs> the, the problem with saints is, is we think that the saints are the ones who are perfect. They're those special Christians who have gone on to do amazing things. But biblically, saints are the holy ones. If you're saved, if you've given your heart to Jesus, if, if Jesus has washed you clean and you're a Christian, you are a saint. So let's try this again. Are there any saints here today? Okay, so the three quarters of you that are saints, you need to evangelise the other quarter over Smoko. So saints means holy ones. You and I being transformed to become holy is what glorifies Jesus. Now that just makes you want to be more holy, doesn't it? If by you being holy, it gives glory to Jesus, 
That just makes you want to be more holy. And this is the contrast. The wicked don't love the truth and they do have pleasure in unrighteousness. The chosen, the saints, love the truth and believe the truth. We've heard the gospel, we believe the gospel, and by believing the gospel, we are saved. And it is our pleasure to live in righteousness because we know that by living in righteousness and being transformed to become holy, this is bringing glory to our Lord. And so calling, this is what God does. He calls us. Believing, this is what we do. We believe in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sanctifying. This is what the Spirit does. So God does the sanctifying. And and this brings glory to Christ. But by the way, uh, we do share in the glory of Christ, by the way. God makes us holy, which gives Jesus glory, but we share in his glory at his coming. Right? So calling is what God does. Believing is what we do. Sanctifying is what God does. But there's more. Believing isn't a once-only event. Believing is an ongoing action. Verse 15 says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. In other words... If we are saved by believing in the truth, we better stick with the truth and hold fast to what Paul calls the traditions. Ooh, some people hate traditions. In fact, in some churches, you'd better not sit in the same pew twice, two weeks running, otherwise your grandchildren might be stuck there as well a a century later. Some, some churches rail against other churches and their traditions. Hello? All churches have their traditions. We do. That's what we humans do. We just have a set way we do things. And, and if you go, well, I do it differently every time, well, that's your tradition. <laughs> um, but he's not talking about man-made traditions here or preferences in the way we conduct worship. What he's talking about is apostolic teaching. The apostles were the ones who learned from Jesus. They followed Jesus. They were eyewitnesses to his resurrection. These men were recognised by the church as having the authority to pass on what they'd learned from Jesus. They passed on the gospel by word of mouth. They passed on the word of Jesus by... By, and, and teaching other teachings by writing letters. And today, what they taught is recorded in the New Testament of our Bibles. If you want to know what apostolic teaching is, read the New Testament of your Bible. And that's why when we have a message every week in church, the message doesn't come from the newspaper. It doesn't come from the latest released Christian bestseller. It doesn't even come from the latest prophecy or word of knowledge. The lesson comes from the Bible. And what Paul's saying here is stand firm 
and hold fast to what the apostles taught. Don't get distracted from it into side issues. Throughout the ages, there's been many ways that the gospel message has been altered to make it more palatable, um, for, more acceptable for a certain audience. And that happens today as well. In some cases, the gospel gets so changed that it's not the gospel any longer. Or at least it's not the gospel that the apostles taught. And therefore, it is no longer truth. Now, what Paul's been telling us is that those who are perishing don't love the truth of the gospel. Therefore, changing the truth, it might make it a bit more popular, but that's not going to help any more people to be saved. Right, two more verses. And in these two verses, we see the work of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see our envelopment into their work. Verse 16. Now, may the Lord Jesus Christ himself, obviously the Son, and God our Father, obviously the Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort. Now, who's the eternal comforter? Holy Spirit. And good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Why do we need comfort? Well, back in chapter 1, Paul was talking about the suffering that this Thessalonian church had been going through. And he's telling them that by God's grace, they have been judged worthy to suffer for Jesus. It's a privilege. It's an honour to suffer for Christ. And our Heavenly Father gives us the comfort of the Holy Spirit in times of suffering. So God does this and God establishes us into his work. Now we sort of get into the area that preachers love to preach on, <laughs> the way that God establishes us into his work. Sadly, we're living in an age of what I call consumer Christianity, where, where the church is seen as a service to provide for me. Um, that's not the way it's supposed to be. If your experience of being a Christian is being a consumer Christian, then you are missing out. The act of God through his grace is to establish us into his work. Grace and works, they nearly always go together in the scriptures. Paul calls it every good work and word. God establishes us in faith and into his ministry and mission in good work and good word. In other words, we believe the truth, so let's live the truth and let's preach it. It got me thinking, so if that's what an established Christian is, 
someone who's been established into, into, his, into his good work and words. What's an immature Christian? An immature Christian is one who watches others. An established Christian lives their faith by loving others and sharing their faith with others. And this, for the glory of Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you loved us so much that you gave your life as a ransom for many. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you chose us and you chose that, that we should hear the gospel and be saved. And we thank you for the gift of faith and we pray that, that we would stand strong in the faith, that we would stand firm and hold fast to what the apostles taught. And now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.